The year is 1798, and Thomas Robert Mathis is having a bit of an existential meltdown. Here's what he writes. The power of population is so superior to the power in the earth to produce subsistence for man that premature death must in some shape or other visit the human race. In his work, an essay on the principle of population, humans would simply run out of resources and slip back into a Stone Age existence. It's easy to read what Mathis wrote and simply brush off the doomsday tone as rank-and-file mid-century fatalism. Then again, it feels kind of ominous, especially when you look at data on population growth and energy consumption. But historically, the foil to Mathis's prediction was science. He simply had no way of foreseeing advances in things like irrigation or improved plant breeding. It's in that spirit that we take a look at how science might answer one of the biggest challenges facing civilization. How are we going to feed and fuel all these people? And in particular, we'll look at bioenergy. Our first interview is with Washington University professor and biologist Bob Blankenship. And for those of you keeping score at home, it is appropriately the shortest interview of the show. You see, Professor Blankenship researches efficiency. More specifically, how we can make plants more efficient. And he's looking into something that just might hold the key to making algae better at turning sunlight into food. That, in turn, would make it a better source for biofuel. So, Professor Blankenship, what is chlorophyll D? Chlorophyll D is a structural variant of the sort of normal chlorophyll that we think of, which is chlorophyll A. And it's almost the same, but it has one crucial structural feature that's different, and that causes the absorption of the chlorophyll to be shifted significantly further into the near-infrared region of the solar spectrum. And what that does is it opens up a new region of the spectrum to the possibility of doing photosynthesis that previously has not been available. So it just makes it more efficient then? Potentially. We, uh, it's one of the things we're working on. This type of chlorophyll was discovered, uh, actually it was discovered a long time ago, but only recently organisms that, that uh, contained primarily this chlorophyll were discovered uh, in the uh, South Seas, and it has just recently been investigated uh, thoroughly. The idea is to try to isolate the genes that code for the enzymes that make this type of chlorophyll and then ultimately to put them into algae and higher plants to expand their solar spectrum uh, that they can use. So if you can kind of copy and paste those genes into another organism, the big plan is to make it more efficient and ultimately make it uh, capable of producing more biofuel. That would be the goal. That is the goal. Uh, we would really like to be able to do that. We, you know, it's basic science research. We don't know exactly what the outcome is going to be. It, it's possible that it could make it less efficient, but we think it's at least has the potential to make it more efficient. And so we're willing to invest our time and energy into, uh, into researching this question. And this kind of plays into this larger scientific narrative of trying to make things more efficient. Right. The, it's now become clear that the 
basic process of photosynthesis uh, that you find in, in photosynthetic organisms, trees and grass and so on, is not really very efficient in terms of a solar energy conversion uh, device. And so one of the projects or one of the sort of larger goals that we have in our research and a number of other groups around the world are doing this as well, is to try to make changes in the system to make it more efficient with the goal of improving things like uh, bioenergy production and, and potentially agricultural production. And so the sort of mechanics that you're using to do this type of research are part of a emerging field called synthetic biology. Yes, synthetic biology is sort of the marriage of biology and engineering in which you take uh, genetic information that you might get from one organism and, and include it into a, another organism. And not just a single gene, but usually a whole pathway, and then you want to regulate that and have it expressed in the right way. And so there are a lot of uh, features involved in making that work. But it's a very exciting new discipline in science that really has the potential for having huge benefits to mankind. And, and far-reaching benefits, well beyond biofuel. You mentioned agriculture earlier. Agriculture, pharmaceuticals, uh, there's just any number of, uh, of applications that synthetic biology can, can address. And so in a scientific sense, let's say things don't work out with what you're doing with chlorophyll D. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Well, we hope it works out, but if you know that's the way basic science works, you never know for sure what's going to happen. And, and oftentimes what you find is that even though you may not have gotten the result you were originally looking for, you may find some other fact or some other uh, result that is actually more beneficial in the long run. There are many examples of that in the history of science. So it's, it's always uh, exciting to see what's around the horizon. So were you like the kid who just tried to tweak his bike like all the time to make it like faster? <laughs> no, I can't say I did that. I mean, I had a bike, but I don't think I tricked it out more than any other kid. <laughs> now that we've talked about making algae more efficient, let's look at making them really fat. That's basically what biologist Ursula Goodenough is researching. When algae are starving or running out of nitrates, they start producing lipids. In turn, refiners can take those lipids and turn them into biodiesel. So Professor Goodenough is trying to understand why they puff up with lipids when they start running out of food. And her main research subject is a little organism nicknamed clammy. Professor Goodenough, can you tell me what clammy is? <laughs> so it's formerly Chlamydomonas reinhardii. Um, it is a unicellular green alga. And uh, algae, it's a very broad category. It's sort of as taxonomically relevant as amoeba. Um, there are all sorts of algae um, in all sorts of <clears throat> evolutionary radiations. But the green algae are the ones that have arguably been studied the most because their radiation also includes the land plants. So since land plants are so important to us <clears throat> in so many ways, um, a lot of laboratories have, during the last hundred years, studied these green algae as good model systems for asking questions of plants that are often more difficult to study. 
And so you you've spent a lot of time with clammy, pretty uh, much of your career. All of my career. <laughs> I started studying it when I was mm, the third year of graduate school, and I've not until now when I'm studying, in fact, other algae. Um, I've always stuck with clammy. <laughs> so I know you're a big proponent of there being more storytelling in science education. Uh-huh. So can you tell me the evolutionary story of clammy? Okay. So in the very beginning, there was the origin of life from non-life, and then that original life form, which may have been very different from anything on the planet today, evolved into what we now call the last universal common ancestor. So this would have been a creature that had DNA as the genetic code and made proteins and had a membrane around it and had lots of genes that are still shared by all life today. Um, and we know this very robustly from thousands of different experiments. So this last universal common ancestor then gave rise to three radiations, great big radiations, called bacteria, the archaea, and the eukaryotes. And most organisms that people are familiar with are eukaryotes, the exception being the bacteria that we're all at least aware that they exist. But humans are eukaryotes, and land plants are eukaryotes, and fungi are eukaryotes, and uh, except for some uh, bacteria that have are able to photosynthesize, all photosynthetic organisms um, are also eukaryotes. So clammy uh, is the direct result of one of these, uh, one of the early eukaryotes, the um, <clears throat> ones in that radiation. Uh, some guy who was presumably some sort of an amoeba um, gobbled up one of these photosynthetic bacteria and domesticated it, converted it into a chloroplast so that this eukaryotic cell could now do photosynthesis just like these photosynthetic bacteria did because it had its own private chloroplast. And that first event of taking in and taming the chloroplast was the beginning of the whole eukaryotic plant radiation. And that radiation then diversified into a lot of different kinds of green algae. And then one subset of that green algal group differentiated into what we now call the mosses and the ferns and the land plants. So clammy is one of the other green algae uh, radiations um, <clears throat> that didn't give rise to land plants, but uh, has all the basic ideas of being a photosynthetic organism. And somewhere in that story, <laughs> clammy developed something where when it's hungry, or when it's starved, rather, for food, in this case nitrogen, mm-hmm. it makes a bunch of lipids. Right. So clammy is not alone in doing that. Uh, so all eukaryotic organisms make uh, that I know of have the capacity to make what is called triacylglycerides. So if you have your blood work done, one of the things that is measured are your TAGs, T-A-Gs. Um, and TAGs are uh, what we call fats. Sometimes they're um, <clears throat> you know, solid at room temperature like butter. Sometimes they're liquid at room temperature like soy oil or something like that. And so 
all organisms make these materials. Uh, what you're referring to is that, to my knowledge, all algae, all the algae that I know of anyway, I don't know one that doesn't do this, also makes an abundance of tags when they are stressed. And the idea is that these tags are, it's kind of like the thinking of a bear hibernating, that when the bear uh, <clears throat> gets into a stressed situation, cold and no food, uh, they um, recognize that by accumulating a lot of fats. And then they can just kind of hang out for long periods, sort of burning those fats slowly. And when spring comes and it's time to emerge, then they have a whole store of energy already made uh, to kind of get them going while they go out and search for food in their usual way. So algae do the same thing. They store these fats. They also, uh, most of them store uh, carbohydrate uh, <clears throat> substances like starch. Um, and so they fill up with both starch and fat and they just sit there and wait and <laughs> hope that nitrogen will come back. But the alternative would be to die, and obviously if you can do this and you don't have to die, that's a, an adaptation that's advantageous. So, now correct me if I'm wrong here, but one of the things that you and lots of other researchers work on is sort of trying to rewrite the genetic script for clammy so that when it gets starved, it makes more fats. Well, as it turns, that is the stated goal of a lot of this research. One of the things we've discovered is that clammy, just when it has a single sort of natural mutation, so not engineered in any way, but just a mutant that doesn't make starch, when it can't make starch, it goes ahead and makes a lot more lipid. It, you know, says, okay, no starch, all right, well, we have another <laughs> idea here. Um, and when that is the case. Clammy, it turns out, can fill up its entire body almost with the lipids. We call them obese. And uh, these obese cells, I'm sure we're have, doing the numbers now, but it's about 90% tagged. Um, and so engineering them to do better uh, doesn't strike me as a useful project because um, they, they already, they're so fat that they float um, and they're doing this without any genetic engineering at all. But that said, there are other algae that have perhaps better properties in terms of growing them up for biofuels that are not going obese on their own and where putting extra genes in there may help them out. So just in terms of clammy, when it's stressed out and fat, that's great for, for biofuel. Right. So in a real world... Per se. Per se, right. right. The, the downside of clamia is that there are, I am told by people who are trying to scale these kinds of uh, organisms up to be in great big open raceway ponds so that you can get enough to actually make a difference, that uh, clammy is not very robust under those circumstances. It doesn't grow well. And I don't know why, and we're starting a little project to see if we can figure out what goes wrong. But meanwhile, there are other kinds of algae that perhaps don't get quite as obese, but that have uh, better growth and industrial kinds of properties. And so the, this field is so young and so new that what I think is 
the definitely the way to go is that you know let a thousand flowers bloom let lots of different algae be, be explored and different ones may work better under different conditions under different weather patterns uh, some are marine some are fresh water some you know and so on so uh, my fantasy for where this might be in 50 years is uh, not a monoculture crop kind of thing but more a uh, local algae being used in particular contexts for a more limited kinds of farms and conversion places where the fuel can be made locally, it doesn't have to be transported across the country, and it can be used in situ. And that would be a very sustainable model. So biodiversity even plays a big part in what you would you would hope to see in a, in a future energy system. Absolutely. No, I mean, there's, there's gazillions of different kinds of algae. And you know, the, we barely scratch the surface. And some people, including a collaborator of mine, actually goes out and, you know, finds algae in weird environments and hauls them back to the lab and starts asking them to make fat. And uh, we're actually working on one of the ones he found, which is kind of fun. It's, it's a great critter. So I want to get kind of big picture for a minute. Yeah. You were talking about how these sort of localized fuel systems might look in the future. Mm-hmm. And it might be that with biodiesel, it's sort of um, just one component of a larger fuel system. And sort of one of the niche markets, if you will, for things that clammy can do and other algae is airplane fuel, jet right. fuel. Right. So we can, you know, I'm a huge pro- proponent of wind, of solar, of all sorts of, and, you know, even nuclear, if we have to do it at least for a while, uh, ways. But all of those technologies in the end generate electricity and electricity is great and we can make electric cars and trains and all sorts of stuff but it's not feasible given current airplane technology to get a jet plane to take off with a battery you just need a lot of thrust and you, yeah, and you need you know a battery that could possibly do that would probably weigh a lot more than the airplane um so anyway for uh jet fuel, if nothing else, and then realistically, since at the moment all of our freight and trains and everything are running on diesel, um, if we could get a more sustainable source of that and not have to just drag it out of the ground, that would be good. And it seems to me that there's just an incredible narrative there where you have this little organism that was there at the beginning that has the potential to help us power our future. Do you ever get? To, do you ever just step step back and sort of just marvel at that? Sure, <laughs> Tell me on a daily that. basis. Well, and I mean, we one could say, being fair, that we've of course been doing this kind of thing for a long time. So we have this little organism called yeast, and it now isn't very much involved in making our bread and making our booze and uh, you know other things. So we as humans have uh, been very adept, it's one of our great traits of having the scientific minds that we do to find other organisms in our environment and use them for our food and fuel and so on. Uh, And one could say, of course, the stuff under the ground, most people believe that the um, major sources of the petroleum are algae, uh, the algae growing in ancient oceans uh, subducted and got pressured and cooked and created the petroleum that we're now bringing back up. So algae have been helping us out 
for much longer than... You just want to kind of do a little bit of a we rewrite. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that was, you know, hundreds of millions of years ago, long before humans were even uh, imagined. Well, <laughs> Professor Goodenough, thank medicine. you for telling me all about clammy. When it comes to jet fuel, what Professor Goodenough is talking about isn't just pie in the sky. What she's researching, which is typically classified as advanced biofuel, is rapidly gaining a foothold in the world of jet fuel. And there's one really big customer right now, the U.S. military. The Air Force, Navy, DOE, and the USDA have pooled resources to spend up to half a billion dollars on biofuel refineries. The rationale? Relying on fossil fuels makes them vulnerable. And the military's goal is to have half of its planes and ships running on renewable fuel by 2020. But let's take a big step back from the topic of geopolitical security and ask why should everyday people care about renewable fuel? Perhaps it's all the talk of rising energy needs and potential links between CO2 from fossil fuels and rising average temperatures. But for economist Joseph Cullen, it's these abstract things called externalities. Before we get to that, he explains the link between government policy and energy markets. Well, energy markets historically have had quite a lot of government regulation applied to them, although in the past few decades a lot of that has been removed. We've seen that both in uh, natural gas and also in electricity markets, um, although to a certain extent, uh, especially electricity markets, there's still a good deal of, of government involvement from government there. Um, but overall, the, the main energy markets uh, do tend to move without governments setting prices in any case. They do set the rules for operating in markets, especially in something like electricity markets where we have to be very careful about you know, things like brownouts and blackouts. So because the, if supply and demand doesn't match exactly in every point in time, then we have problems with the electricity grid. Um, but there has been, um, you know, over the last few decades, a pretty strong move to um, restructure these markets and make sure that they're as competitive as possible. So they're not necessarily players in the game, but they kind of set the ground rules for the game in some respects. Yeah, so it's like a lot of other, um, you know, things like uh, financial markets. There are also rules about what you can and can't do in financial markets um, and electricity markets. Um, and uh, natural gas markets and oil markets, again, uh, there are rules about how the game works, but for the most part, um, especially in things like natural gas, oil, and coal, those operate pretty much as a market independently of, of uh, government regulation on the way those markets operate. Like I said, electricity markets are a little more sensitive, and so uh, actually depending on the state you're in, the um, electricity markets may be restructured because they still have some regulation in them. That's, that's why I'm not saying deregulated. So they may be restructured, um, or they may not be restructured, depending on the state. So it's really the state that decides that. So I want to talk about energy markets on a very micro level. Okay. So when we fill up our, our car with gasoline, is the true cost of a gallon of gasoline what we see at the pump, or are there other things that go into the cost of, of gasoline? So this is uh, very much a, uh, a question that is being asked all the time uh, because there are costs outside of the traditional production costs that go into producing a, a barrel of gasoline 
that probably should be in the price of gasoline but aren't necessarily. These include um, these these aspects that are not included in the production costs are sometimes called externalities because they're external to the production process. For example, um, an externality we may be worried about with gasoline is the pollution that gas um, produces when we burn it in our cars. This could be anything from carbon dioxide, which is related to climate change, or even things on a more micro scale like, uh, you know, things like uh, smog, right, that's produced from emissions from cars, uh, particulates in the air, right? These are all things that historically the producer or the manufacturer of gasoline hasn't internalized, but they're real costs in the economy. They really affect people's health and um, they have implications for our economy. So there are those kinds of things in gasoline that are not um, in the price of gasoline. There has been uh, movement toward to try to internalize those externalities, um, but uh, most research tends to show that there are still costs that are not internalized in, in the price of gasoline. As a researcher, I mean, that seems like such a broad topic, externalities, you know, mm -hmm. all these different things that can be ultimately impacted by fossil fuels. So how do you even go about setting the variables to measure that? So you really have to go about it on a case-by-case -case basis. So let's take gasoline, for instance. Right? One externality from gasoline may be carbon dioxide emissions. Right? And that actually is a global problem, not just a local or a national problem. Right? So in order to, to get the appropriate price on gasoline, one that internalizes all of the benefits and all of the costs of gasoline, we would need to be able to do that somehow. That's that in of itself, which is just one aspect of gasoline, is not an, an easy task right? because we we don't know exactly what the future costs of of climate change are going to be, and how the climate is going to respond to different levels of carbon dioxide. And so, these are things that researchers are are continually working on to try to get a a better, more accurate picture of what these externalities are. And this would have to be done for every aspect of of gasoline. So there's local health, you know, costs potentially with gasoline. So we need to also measure those and that would be in some sense an independent project from looking at the effects of carbon dioxide. So if we can just kind of do a little economics 101. Sure. A typical supply and demand chart has two lines, supply and demand. Mm -hmm. How would you mix in a line for externalities or those extra costs or, or could you even do that? So the the, the extra line for for extra costs would be added into the supply curve. So if, you know, given the costs facing uh, oil refineries and oil producers now, they're willing to produce a certain amount of oil, or it's economical to produce a certain amount of oil at current prices. And we see when prices go up, you know, refiners uh, want to produce more gasoline. They want to respond to those price signals. Now, internalizing the costs would, would shift the supply curve the other way. Right, so like if we were to put a tax um, on, on gasoline because of the negative health consequences it has for people who live near highways, for example, right? we want to internalize that. We want to reduce the amount of uh, gasoline that's supplied at any given price. And that would have actually an effect both on the supply curve and on the demand curve. So um, and that's the beauty of, of using prices, whether you know, we're talking about a cap and trade system for pollutants or whether we're talking about a tax is that you allow both the supply side and the demand side to respond to that um, 
new information about the costs of using this of using this product, and so it can adapt in any number of ways. So both of those may may uh, shift. And so you were just talking about internalizing an externality into, say, what we pay for a gallon of gasoline, or mm -hmm. you know what we pay in our electric bills. Is there an example of of that happening in practice, at least in America? Absolutely. So probably the the poster child for uh, using uh, at least using markets to internalize these externalities is the sulfur dioxide markets which uh, were created as part of the Clean Air Act amendments and implemented in the mid-1990s. So here we had electri electricity uh, generating companies that were burning coal for the most part and emitting a lot of sulfur dioxide into the atmosphere through their smokestacks and the combustion of coal. And what the government did is they said, we want to limit the amount of sulfur dioxide that's in the atmosphere, so we're going to put a cap on that. And we're going to allow you to you know, buy and trade, sell permits, whatever seems to work for you. And the, the sentiment at the time was that, yeah, this is doable, but it's going to be very costly. So people projected that the cost uh, to reduce a ton of sulfur dioxide and get it out of the smokestacks, either by physically remove it as it's coming out of the smokestack, and the other way is to just burn a different kind of fuel that doesn't pollute as much. Right? And, and most estimates uh, seem to suggest that these, this is going to be costly, and that would be passed on to consumers in, in terms of higher electricity bills, and then consumers would be able to respond to that, right? So they'd be able to consume less electricity if electricity is more expensive. Um, and actually, the, the, the less, one of the lessons we learned from that is it was much less costly to re hit those targets than we thought. So they, they were thinking it would cost that the market clearing prices would be two to $300 per ton, and they ended up being around 50 to $70 per ton. So. Uh, when we internalize these kinds of costs without explicitly telling people what to do. So previously what they had done is they'd said, okay, you have this power plant, this is what you have to, you have to install this kind of technology, you have to, uh, you know, behave in this way. And with the market approach, and just by internalizing that cost, then we allow for different kinds of innovation, um, they found actually that they could switch fuels fairly easily, which they didn't think they were, would be able to do. And they found that they could switch to low sulfur coal pretty easily. And there were engineers and, and scientists that worked on that and were really able to develop these, uh, these new techniques for reducing sulfur dioxide at a much lower cost than anybody anticipated. It strikes me that that's sort of an interesting example because you're sort of using government intervention to unleash a non-government activity, the market. Absolutely. Absolutely, that's exa absolutely what's going on. So I want to, to sort of close out by asking you about some of the research that you're going to be working on with some folks uh, at Harvard. You're going to step back and say, well, in terms of government funding, is it best spent on influencing industrial decisions? Or is it better spent sort of supporting research that might create new innovation that might change the market on its own? Sure. So our our basic question comes from the observation that uh, the government and people in general in the United States for a lot of reasons, they want to support renewable energy. So uh, sometimes people dislike the idea of renewable energy, but more importantly, there are, there are benefits to having renewable energy, right? In, in particular, benefits in, in, the, in the sense that we don't have the same kind of pollutants from using renewable energy sources that we do from using fossil fuel energy sources, all of the pollutants I was previously talking about. So one way that 
the government has become involved in these markets is they have subsidized renewable energy, which politically has actually been quite popular. Right? People can get behind the idea of we want more renewable energy in the United States. So if you look at the, the funding that has gone towards renewable energy, about more than 85% of it has been towards uh, subsidizing the production of renewable energy. So uh, the largest of these programs is the production tax credit. And what this does is it gives, for example, a wind farm that's producing electricity a payment for every unit of electricity it produces. So an investor who's thinking about installing a wind farm can count on this stream of money from the government, these subsidies, uh, to uh, you know, gain financing and to make the operation profitable. But like I said, about 85% of the money that we're giving to renewables is going here. And this uh, has a very immediate impact on the number of wind farms, the number of solar plants, the number of geothermal facilities or bioenergy facilities that are implemented in the U.S. now. Um, what isn't clear is exactly how this filters down into things like innovation. So the, the, the big picture idea is that if we subsidize the demand side, so the, in, in terms of demand, the demand for investors building wind farms and solar farms and, and these types of things, uh, that that will translate into incentives for innovation and research and development because there will be money to be made. Uh, it's not clear that this is the case for a number of reasons, um, the first of which is that these subsidies uh, tend to be very um, short-lived, right? We don't have, the, the government hasn't committed to, or nor is it clear they can credibly commit to having a subsidy over the next 30 years. So if you have a project that you think is going to take a very long time to come to fruition, right, and you start developing it now, how do you know that the economic incentives are going to be there in 5, 10, 15 years? It's not, it's not clear. Now, if you have a technology that's available now, you can definitely put it in the ground now and start, start reaping those uh, incentives. But what um, we would like to look at is whether the allocation of, of government funding to these demand-side programs would be better served, um, or some of it might be better served, uh, allocating it towards research and de development, so directly subsidizing researchers at universities, um, potentially private uh, companies, um, to actually engage in uh, projects that will have a direct impact on the you know, innovation in, in solar energy, innovation in wind energy, or uh, bioenergy, whatever kind of uh, energy production that we're looking at. And uh, I mean, there are advantages and disadvantages to, um, to, both, to both systems or both ways of spending money. Uh, but given that the funding is so heavily skewed to, to the one side, that we're putting almost all of our money on the demand side, it seems that we may be able to do better by uh, subsidizing some of these research and development activities. And in particular, there are economic reasons to believe that this may be important. Um, in particular, uh, if you can't patent uh, something that you innovate, right, in that it's sort of general knowledge, it's not something that's patentable, or if you can patent it, but the time to bring it to market is going to be so long after you patent it that your patent will have expired, Right, then there's no incentive to in innovate in those areas. And so that's when the when um, government uh, subsidized research and development may uh, provide innovation in areas that would just otherwise not happen but would be very valuable to society as a whole. So you kind of want to see if it might be a better way to spend money on sort of people having light bulb moments where they kind of come up with this great new technology rather than saying this is how you should maybe spend your money in the market. Right. 
Right, and in in particular, the, making the kind of improvements that we're making in wind and solar right now from these demand side subsidies seem to be mostly incremental. So we're getting a little bit better at producing wind farms because we're making more of them, right? And costs are going down a, a little bit. Um, with solar energy, costs have been going down more dramatically, but the, that's mostly because of international production as opposed to domestic production in the U.S. of, of solar panels. And so we're getting, we are getting better at, at doing these things, ostensibly partly because of, of these subsidies. But the question is, do we need incremental improvements or do we need a breakthrough innovation? So big step changes. Right. And it's not clear that subsidizing the demand side is going to give us those breakthrough technologies, right? Whereas investing in R&D may enable those breakthrough technologies, something that's very different in the market now, right? And remember, if you're just relying on these demand side subsidies, uh, it may take a long time to get this breakthrough technology, or you may not be able to bring it to market um, until after maybe these subsidies have already expired. Well, Professor, thanks for spending some time with me. Sure. So far, we've covered some pieces of what could contribute to our energy future. But what about putting them all together? That's where Professor Himradi Pakrazi comes into the equation. He directs something called ICARES, or International Center for Advanced Renewable Energy and Sustainability. Its function is to bring together researchers across disciplines. We sat down with him to talk about a key part of his job, building bridges. So Professor, I want to start with asking you, how do you build a bridge between biological and physical sciences? It's easy to build bridges nowadays. It wasn't so easy when I first came here to Washington University 25 years ago. And the paradigm change that has taken place is in the following. Biology, very simply, is moving from a qualitative kind of science to becoming a quantitative kind of science. So physical sciences for the longest time have been using quantitative tools. And so basically this means then bringing in investigators, collaborators, researchers who have the knowledge in quantitative sciences to come together with biologists. Now this is the way it used to be, but now it's very different because there are many uh, biologists who are now well-trained in quantitative sciences. So building bridges was a new paradigm about 10 years ago, no longer so. It still is an issue. Uh, it used to be that our students, long time ago, used to say, you know, I thought I'm doing biology because I didn't have to do math. Now I hear much less of that. So it's, it's going in that direction. Okay, so it would be safe to say this requires a lot of collaboration, though. This will require a lot of collaboration, right. And, and so what are the sort of challenges in that kind of collaborative environment? So the collaborations, I think that the important thing to keep in mind is that nobody really knows everything. So we have to start from that point of view. There are some people who know certain things more than other people do. But the recognition of the fact that everybody is important that's probably the first step in setting up good collaborations. The collaborative environment is such that everybody needs to have that form of collaboration with somebody else. And so by that what I mean is that it should not be something that is imposed 
onto one or more researchers in a team. Basically what happens is one finds a big challenging problem, that's the key, and one wants to just solve that problem. So in order to do that, one recognizes that, well, I don't have all the knowledge and I need to collaborate with others. As long as this recognition is there, collaborations are easy. And more and more and more are happening and a lot of collaborative teams that are all over the campus. Not everybody needs to collaborate. That's the other thing to keep in mind. There will always be researchers who are doing great work, winning Nobel Prizes, based on exactly the way people have done work, which is in your own office, all by yourself, in your own lab, with your, only your students. This is just a different paradigm where you need to have kind of mixing and matching of, uh, of talents from various areas, various disciplines. And so you were talking about having a really big challenge to bring together these kinds of collaborations. It seems to me Advanced Biofuels presents that kind of large challenge. In, in fact, let's go away from Advanced Biofuels completely. It's not biofuels that's important, it's bioenergy that's the important part, okay? And there is a slight distinction in the two. So energy, environment, sustainability, these are topics that are very near to my heart. These are big challenges. This century, the grand challenge is in the area of energy environment and sustainability. There is no other issue that's more important than what's, you know, the totality of these areas uh, uh, represent. But in a way, that's an obvious because that's human civilization, that's our planet, that's everything, you know, energy environment and sustainability. So this is really a grand challenge. And so it's going to require approaching it from multiple angles. It requires approaching it from many, many, many different angles. It requires people thinking about it from the point of view of natural sciences, from social sciences, from humanities, from engineering, from architecture, just about everything that you can think of. And guess what? A university is the best place to do it. As soon as you get into a corporation, as soon as you get into any specialized institute, it's very difficult to bring together all the talents that are needed to get something like this done. And even beyond that, the talent pool that's needed today, five years from now, it may be a completely different talent pool. That's it's always needed. kind of re refreshing here. We are just moving forward. We are saying, oh, today I need to solve the problem with biofuels. But tomorrow, I want to use bioenergy to solve the problem of food. And day after, I may want to use bio bioenergy to create all kinds of new material. So you see places like Washington University as really the front lines in these types of Washington efforts. University is truly in the front lines. Washington University is in the front lines, and that's because university leadership decades ago realized this. And I will ascribe and give credit to the chancellor, in taking the lead in all of this. He himself is an energy scientist, a chemist, uh, who has worked for a long time in the area of solar energy. So he really understands this concept of bringing everybody together to solve this big challenge. And this push has been there, and hence the university 
really benefits from that. We are ahead of, I would not say all, but most institutions in the country, in this area. And with collaboration in mind, you direct something called iCARES. Right. What is that? Okay, so iCARES is the International Center for Advanced Renewable Energy and Sustainability. And here is our new brochure, brand new, hot off the press, came out uh, last week. What this is, is an institutional endeavor to bring everybody together. So it's the concept of collaborations. And when you look at iCARES, as the, the cover page shows, it's the sun, that's the source of energy, clean energy, sustainable energy for our uh, civilization, right? And so that's what it represents. And as far as the collaboration, let me describe to you among many different activities that's going on under the umbrella of iCARES, there is one that's a very special one, is what I call the centerpiece. And the centerpiece looks like this. So what are we, what are we looking and at And what here? we are looking at is the research funding program at iCARES. So the institution provides iCARES a core level of funding every year that we then ask for collaborative programs, research proposals to come in, and it's very, very competitive. We are in the fifth year, and right now a competition is on. In the first four years, we have funded 72 individuals in 48 different research proposals. And here are all the people. And basically what it shows is that this concept of network, the concept of hubs and spokes and nodes. So we take sustainable ecosystems, and in that you will see Jen Smith from Arts and Sciences is collaborating with Kevin Smith from Tyson, is collaborating with Jay Turner from Engineering, is collaborating with people from outside Washington University. So this is an enterprise where we bring in people from all different disciplines, encourage them to build research programs that are collaborative in nature, the kind of research that cannot be done by one person, one individual, and one discipline alone. So I'm looking here at this, this chart that you've you flipped to, and like you'd mentioned, there's all these hubs and, and, and spokes, and I imagine with all these people talking about energy, can you sort of lay out what the, the current state of funding for uh, bioenergy research is right now? Right. Well, funds are very important. It's probably the second most important thing. The most important one, obviously, is the intellectual quest, and in that context, then bringing teams together. Once the teams are together, then they need to execute that, those. And we are, you know, this area of energy, environment, and sustainability, it seems like we have this amnesia followed by renewed interest. And the good news right now is that we are at the top of the wave, whatever this wave is, and one hopes that this wave does not go down very quickly. Um, and so, and that's important because the challenges are such that in order to solve them, they have to be, you know, there needs to be sustained effort. Uh, and again, university can do that. Uh, we have been very fortunate over the last few years um, in bringing in resources. And bringing in resources in the context of bioenergy, in the context of energy per se, 
so under the umbrella of eye cares are now two very large efforts. One is the Consortium for Clean Coal Utilization. That's three different uh, companies that are putting in so far close to $12.5 million over five years. And uh, uh, that's being led by folks from engineering, but there are individuals from arts and sciences and other parts of the institution that are all working together. You mentioned the, the ebb and flow of, of that funding, and I'm curious, just from a scientific standpoint, what does that mean when there's all of a sudden money coming in and then maybe the next couple of years there's not as much money coming in? Right. What it means is that uh, we need to be prepared for uh, a time when there's not going to be as much money. It's almost a given. But I think as researchers, we, we are prepared to do that. The concept of getting a lot of work done when a lot of funding is available, and then when less funding is available, take advantage of the teams that are already formed. So even when less funding is available, institutions that are well poised to take advantage of that lesser amount of money are always going to be successful. So you're kind of building a framework now when, when times are good to be able to deal with issues if they're, they're not so good down the road. That's right. Well, let, 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 let's go back and I, I want to come back to the most important issue. Funding is necessary, important, but not the primary focus. The intellectual quest is the primary focus. I'm a true believer in the, in the fact that it doesn't matter. We have under the umbrella of iCares another entity called PARC. $20 million over five years. We have 17 investigators who are coming together. Well, we will come up for renewal, okay? But no matter what happens in that renewal, the spirit of working together is going to remain there. And that's a very important issue. I think that as long as we take advantage of the current funding to put the teams together where people have learned how to work with each other, I think the opportunities will be limitless in the future no matter whether the funding level at the national level is up here or down there, because we are then prepared to take advantage of whatever opportunity is there. And this is a very important thing to keep in mind. Oftentimes people forget this. There are organizations where they say, oh, there is a lot of money, let's do a lot of work there. And then there's a lot, of, lot more money in another area and let's go there. That's not the way university operates. Once we decide that we are, want to work on solar energy and bioenergy in many ways is, is, is a form of solar energy because it's ultimately the capturing sunlight uh, is, is, is what biology does, then we will continue. And a very important thing to keep in mind is that because of the funding that's coming in, that's allowing us to recruit outstanding researchers to our talent pool, to our faculty. These people are coming, and they are coming here with the aspirations to become leaders in the future. So that's, what, again, what a university does. In arts and sciences, in chemistry, in biology, in physics, in, in uh, arts and planetary sciences, because of the fact that we have all of these funding programs in place, we can very easily attract, I believe, just the very best talent who are available today. Okay. Just to give you an example, not arts and sciences, but I very seldom think in terms of just arts and sciences. It's the university. Um, 
just next door to iCARES now in uh, the energy environment and chemical engineering. This year, they made three offers in the area of bioenergy. Unprecedented, three out of three immediately accepted. And they are coming from Berkeley and MIT and Oak Ridge National Lab. Why did this happen? It's because now we are well known. We took advantage of the funding that came here. And then these guys all say, Washington University is the place to be at. And once these guys are here, in the next five years, if the funding level goes down or goes up, it doesn't matter. They are here. They are going to just continue to do the very best research that can be done. And in addition to that, it's the opportunity that is created through these funding programs in setting up collaborations that go beyond the disciplines, individual disciplines and schools. So the three individuals who are coming in engineering, they know that biology and arts and sciences have outstanding expertise. School of Medicine has outstanding expertise. And already I can see that these three newcomers are talking to these other people. I'm going to be at Washington University, what can I do with you? This is a very different kind of paradigm that not all every institution can offer to the newcoming faculty. And I think this is one of the reasons I'm very hopeful that in the coming decade, in the coming era, there will be new opportunities coming up through funding programs or new opportunities that will be generated, which is the best situation, through the work that's done by our faculty. We are going to be the, you know, do that path-breaking research that will then lead to recognition, more funding, better training for our students. And you had mentioned as well that you're trying, though, even though you know, you're able to sort of take advantage of this big uptick in, in funding, you're trying not to, in the future, tie actually what you're researching to where funding is at. That is right. We are very careful in not overextending ourselves. We are very careful in not over-promising. That's another thing that's happening in the area of energy uh, uh, production. Because of the high level of funding that's available now, or was in the last three, four years, I see more and more that there are researchers just like me at other places who are getting into the trap, as I call it. They start over-promising. They say things that are still not achieved, but then they say, we have already achieved it. This is very dangerous. Because as scientists, we go by what we know, what we can achieve, we are always very cautious, and then we deliver. So at Washington University, the culture is such, whether you talk to Bob Blankenship, whether you talk to Ursula Goodenough, we will always say, this is where we are, this is what we understand, and we will then look into the future and say, based on this, this is where we want to go. So very seldom you will hear the buzzwords that are floating around, that we can generate biofuel today, which is going to be cost competitive with gasoline. We, don't, we are not in that realm. We don't do that type of stuff. What we do is, this is the best science that can be done. This is the most exciting thing that's on the horizon, and we are pursuing that research activity. It's not our job, we believe, to sell things just because somebody asking you to do that sell. We are not in that game. We really are based on very solid research, outstanding research work, but we are true to our science. 
And that's a very important thing to keep in mind, simply because if we don't overpromise, then if we have overachievement, then people will remember that. And they will not come back and say, but hey, you said $2 per gallon of biofuel. Where is that? We never say that. So you feel like the culture here is sort of keeping you or encourages you not to overpromise, and that probably makes it personally much easier to, to make sure that you don't fall into the trap that you see some of your colleagues perhaps at that is correct. other institutions. That is correct. That is absolutely correct. We are, uh, we are known, actually, uh, all around the nation, and now through all of the international activities that iCares is involved in, uh, all the other places in the world where we have interactions People know that when we say that we can do something, they better pay attention to it because we are saying things on the basis of really very exciting, but at the same time solid data. So I describe our activities more data-driven and not just driven by dreams. So, but if we can't just dream for a second, how close are we to making bioenergy commercially viable? I mean, what's your sense? So the question is one of scale. The question is one of biofuels, if we go into that realm, you know, when is it that we are going to be able to replace a substantial amount of transportation fuels? I think how close are we, and this is again more at the national and international level, um, I would say sometime in the next decade we are going to see the real impact but here is something else to remember. When we talk about bioenergy, it's not just biofuels. It's bioenergy is about food. Bioenergy is about making chemicals, chemical products. No reason why we should not be using algae to make nylon. All of those technologies are at our grasp. So I think that there will be impacts in those areas also in the next decade. The other thing that's very important is that in the energy area, there is no either or. It's going to be all of the above. It's going to be solar energy, it's going to be wind, it's going to be bio, and it's going to be just about everything that you can think of. So in that context then, collectively, we are going to contribute, but never saying, again, being cautious and being pragmatic, that we are going to replace all of petroleum tomorrow. Five years to 10 years, good. We are going to make tremendous uh, contribution in these fields. And I will say, you know, given what the demand is projected of the total energy that's going to be used 25 years from now, most of it is actually outside the United States. It's going to be our partners in India and China and other places who are going to be, have a lot of needs. And since we are in this, we are in a university, we are going to contribute to that global knowledge base. So I think that in the next 10 to 15 years, there will be step changes that will take place. I'm not going to say that we are going to solve all the problems. It's going to be, it's going to take a lot. You know, think about it the following way, and I, I always mention this to people who are thinking about energy. Health challenges, 1970. The president of this country at that time said, we are going to win the area that's called cancer. And look where we are. We have learned a lot. 
but we also recognize that we are going to have to invest a lot more of research efforts in conquering cancer. Arguably, the whole area of energy is much bigger. You know, we have this anthropomorphic way of thinking about things that human health is very important, and it is. It is very important for each one of us. But energy is something that drives civilization. And we are facing unprecedented challenges now in that all the work that has been done in the last four or 500 years by everybody in this area has brought us to a number. The unit happens to be a very big one called terawatts. And this is what we need to recognize, that we are facing challenges that are unprecedented in human civilization. So in order to solve those challenges, I think that we need to have this view that it's going to continue. We have to do research work throughout the century. We are continuously going to have newer and newer discoveries that will be made. And what has happened with, let's say, the computer industry between 1950s and 2012, it's at that pace, if not faster, we need to make progress in the area of energy. And so as far as where we will be 10 years from now, I believe a reasonably good idea. Where we will be at 30 years from now, I don't have any idea. And that's what's exciting, right? I mean, I, I want to see, you know, I, I, want, I look forward to 10 years from now of where things are and projecting for the next following 10 years. And I know it's, it's going to be very different. That's one thing that we know. And that's where I think that our researchers, our students are going to make contributions for years and years to come. To close the show, I want to pass along one big statistic. By 2050, the United Nations predicts the world population will hit 9 billion. That's a whole lot of people to feed and fuel. For more on this show and hold that thought, check out thought.artside.wustel.edu. And a special thank you to Jeffrey Matthews for lending his voice at the start of the show. Thanks for listening.